This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. The Defence Secretary pays his respects in Afghanistan. Considering the scale and volume of contacts that there are between British troops and the ANSF, this is still a very, very rare occurrence. We look back at the events leading up to the Falklands War. Tonight, government sources are trying to play down the possibility of an imminent invasion of the Falklands. And the Household Cavalry prepares for an historic year. The fatal shooting of two British servicemen by a member of the Afghan National Army has raised concerns about the number of so-called green-on-blue incidents in Afghanistan. One in seven of the foreign troops killed in the country so far this year were killed by Afghan security forces. Establishing trust between Afghan soldiers and their NATO counterparts often begins at the Kabul Military Training Centre. Well, Colonel Mike Miner is the commanding officer of that training centre and he joins us now. Hello, Colonel Miner. Thank you for your time today. Welcome to SITREP. What kind of impact does it have on your centre when there's news of an Afghan, presumably trained in a centre like yours, turning against ISAF forces? It's a it's a very complex situation. Uh, this this war, and I have to stress that it is a war, and it's also a counterinsurgency. So it's not your typical kind of war. Um, the the impact is normally quite temporary. Uh, we have a, a very good relationship with our uh, ANA counterparts, and it is a relationship built on trust. Uh, there's about thirteen thousand Afghans that actually work at KNTC. Uh, 3,000 staff and uh, up to 10,000 students, sometimes a little higher than that. And so the fact is it's hard to build this sort of the, the bonds of trust with everyone when you're talking about that numbers. Um, but that, that said, the relationship that we do have with the staff that we work uh, with day in and day out is, is quite solid. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we accept the fact that there's a, an omnidirectional threat. It's everywhere. It's nowhere. You never know where it will come from. Um, but I, I firmly believe that by building those bonds of trust uh, with our ANA counterparts, that we are, in a sense, providing some security for ourselves. Indeed, you talk about. Uh, the we work to. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, you. You talk about about the trust. Uh, it must be very difficult, though, for mentors and trainers to carry on their work and, and build on that trust when you have these kind of incidents, and when they must be aware that they could become targets at any moment. Yes, uh, so that, that's the balance of being a professional, really. Uh, as I said, it's an omnidirectional threat, and it's not a very common threat. Although uh, the numbers have been increasing, it's still a very, very rare occurrence when you look at the daily interactions that we have with Afghan forces around the country, whether it be down in Kandahar, where I served a year, or, or up here. And so it's a rare occurrence. Um, I, I would say that if we, if we can't have that sort of a bond of trust with our ANA counterparts, then uh, it's, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to do our mission. And, and so, in a sense, it's a leap of faith, but it's more than that. We're also trained soldiers, and uh, we're, we're aware of our surroundings and what's happening, and we're looking for differences in pattern of life and things like that. And so, although the trust is there, we also know that, you know, 
here, for example, we can't have solid relationship with 13,000 Afghans. There's only about 410 of us, plus another 200 advisors working with the branch schools. So, you know, we, we've got those solid relationships, but we, we accept the fact that on rare occasions something can happen, and, and there could be a, a green on, on blue uh, incident given the nature of, of this conflict. Well, with us here today also is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, do you think there's any pattern emerging with these green on blue attacks? It, should we pay much attention to them? I think we pay much attention uh, to them because, A, they're tragedies, A, they are a blip um, in the whole system with the ANA. We should also remember that the tragedy that everybody witnesses, the, the public effects in somewhere like the United Kingdom, the political reaction in the United Kingdom and elsewhere does not deter the whole operation it is a very, very, very small uh, incident in what is a huge operation and um, which has got to continue and then continue on uh, from 2014. Uh, Colonel Miner, how reliable is the selection procedure for recruits? I know you don't want to go into detail for operational security, but how reliable can it be? It's, it's something that the ENA are, are working uh, hard on improving. And the recruiting system, it's not my area of expertise, but I do know that uh, in the villages they, the recruits are vouched for as they're coming through the training system. Uh, they are, are enrolled in, in biometrics, and then they arrive. And so you get these young, you, you get these young men coming from the villages with uh, certain values that have been inculcated in them. Some may not be the values that we want here uh, at KNTC, but they're brand new recruits. Um, the recruit training is only nine weeks. It's not perfect. It will become longer once the ANA is at steady state. But here, the, the message is, first of all, unity begins here. And we're not only talking about the tribal unity, uh, but, but also that everyone there is serving your country. And so they, they are inculcating soldiers in, in a very good way, just as, as we do uh, in our own countries. Um, part of the issue and part of the problems in Afghanistan, uh, I think it's about 40% of the incidents have been um, due to situations where the coalition has simply uh, got in arguments or, or shown a disrespect uh, for the Afghan soldiers or the Afghan officers or the Afghan NCOs. And based on Pashtu Wali and, and the dignity that these, these folks have, they settle arguments in a different way. Uh, one of the ways I deal with this here is KTC is simply, first of all, uh, we are in a, we're in a, immersed in a culture that we will never understand. It's a culture like no other. It's an Eastern culture. We're from the West for the most part. Um, but what we what we do see is a tip of the cultural iceberg, and we start to recognize it's a lot different from ours. And so it's all built on respect and tolerance, tolerating the differences and respecting those differences. Um, and I, I, I think that if we do that as a start state, we're off to a, a very good start. All right. Colonel Mike Miner, commanding officer at the Kabul Military Training Center. Thank you very much for your time today. Well, the Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, has been visiting Helmand Province. He's paid tribute to the two British servicemen who were killed on Monday and says the circumstances of their deaths will not change the working relationship with Afghan forces. It is working. Um, we've got to stick with it. But, of course, when an incident like the one earlier this week at Lashkagar occurs, we have to stop, we have to check what we're doing, we have to make sure that all the right precautions are in place. Considering the scale and volume of contacts that there are between British troops and the ANSF, this is still a very, very rare occurrence. 
BFBS reporter James Hurst joins us now from our studio in Camp Bastion. Uh, James, why was Philip Hammond in Helmand? Well, it was it's what I would describe as a, a routine visit. You see defence secretaries come through here every once in a while. They want to keep in touch with the people who are actually doing the work out here, leading the work out here. But it was a routine visit at perhaps not a routine time. Um, he was present yesterday uh, away from the cameras at the uh, vigil ceremony that is held each time there is a repatriation from here at Camp Bastion. Um, as well as that, as I say, he has been meeting troops and commanders, but he also met the governor of Helmand province while he was uh, out and about within Helmand yesterday. Uh, we are told discussing long-term commitments to Afghanistan. It is a, a long-term commitment that we have heard pledged before, but we still don't have a huge amount of detail on. And James, did he give any idea about British troop numbers post-2014? Well, when he was speaking yesterday while he was here in Helmand, he wouldn't really be drawn. Interestingly, interviewed on the BBC Radio 4's Today programme this morning, he said troop numbers after the end of the combat mission would most likely be a few hundred. Uh, so he, I think he's leaving himself scope. He's not saying that he's set in stone. Most likely is a, is a key phrase there. But he's talking about, you know, one to two hundred being pledged to this officer academy dubbed sandhurst in the sand that is the the one commitment that we've known about for some time post 2014 but if he's talking about probably a few hundred it rather suggests one option on the table is actually for that academy to be the bulk or even the only part of a long-term british military commitment but as i say he's stressing options are open that decisions are not yet taken and remember, it is not just Britain that is involved in this post-2014 planning for Afghanistan. There are a lot of other countries who've been involved here over the last decade and who are being talked to about a long-term commitment. That idea of a long-term commitment is being led through NATO. Remember, they still haven't finalised the shape of drawdown, let alone what lies beyond. I think it is all up for discussion at the moment, behind the scenes. I think that discussion... Oh. He's going to have to become more public in May at the NATO summit in Chicago. All right, James Hurst and Camp Bastion, thank you for that. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, Trooping the Colour and the London Olympics. We look ahead at a busy summer schedule for the household cavalry. BFBS Sit Rep. On Monday, it will be 30 years since Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands. 255 British servicemen were killed in the conflict, along with 655 members of Argentina's armed forces. Three Falkland Islanders also lost their lives. The war lasted 74 days. BFBS reporter Tim Cooper looks back at the event, le events leading up to military action. Time, 10.40, Alpha, Metsi. Flight deck, flight SAR, clear, engage. In 1976, the BBC programme Sailor highlighted the modern Royal Navy. Hello, this is Seeking, marking dip 20016, over. Despite the Cold War, more or less the service had enjoyed years of peace. And by the early 80s, a defence review concluded its surface fleet could be slimmed down. Well, the Royal Navy was in a bit of a turmoil. Major General Julian Thompson. The carriers were going to be disposed of, and the amphibious ships were going to be disposed of. The ice patrol ship Endurance was going to be also got rid of. But a landing on a small South Atlantic island that most people hadn't heard of would be the opening gambit in an aggressive action which would force politicians to reassess and, in short order, throw the senior service 
into its biggest fight since the Second World War. Let's go to the studios of ITM for the national and international news. The Foreign Secretary, Lord Carrington, has called for a report on an incident on the Falkland Islands dependency of South Georgia. Argentine scrap metal workers, including some Marines, landed on South Georgia on the 19th of March, 1982. Tension between the nations grew, and intelligence suggested Argentina could be planning an invasion of the Falkland Islands. But hopes were high that a diplomatic effort would win through. Tonight, government sources are trying to play down the possibility of an imminent invasion of the Falklands. But speculation continues. Just hours before the invasion, some military commanders say talk of Argentine aggression was being played down. But then it happened. The sound of Argentine troops landing near Stanley, captured by their own camera crew. It's the Falkland Islands Broadcasting Studio. Now, we've just had a call from... Uh, our concern is for the welfare and safety of the people of the Malvinas. This was the message from the Argentine Armed Forces. Now, the, the situation, as you might hear, is that the radio station has now been um, taken over. Um, we have three Argentine members. Just a minute. If you take the gun out of my back, I'm going to transmit that to you. If you take the gun away. Bill Butcher was serving on HMS Herald in the Mediterranean when news of the invasion came through. I suppose it was shock, surprise, pride, uh, you know, the fact that the Navy was getting involved and a sort of uh, a sense of, I wonder what's going to happen next. Julian Thompson, then brigadier in charge of 3 Commando Brigade Royal Marines, was faced with the task of formulating a military response. We had people on leave spread all around the world. I mean, one of my companies was in Brunei conducting jungle training, which wasn't exactly a good uh, preparation for fighting in a country where there aren't any trees. So they had to be got back. The task force would be rushed together, but it would be many weeks before it was all over. Well, we just heard the voice of Major General Julian Thompson, and he joins us now. Welcome to the programme. Um, Thinking back to that time, it sounds like Britain was really taken by surprise. Britain was. No excuse for that. There were plenty of indicators, but Britain was taken by surprise. You're quite right. Where were you when you heard the news? I was in bed, (laughs) 4 o'clock in the morning. I got a telephone call. My boss said, you know those people down south, they're about to be invaded. And uh, get your brigade, sail, it was Friday, sail on Tuesday. It's incredible. Uh, Christopher, um, you were one, among those people, Christopher, who were saying that this was on the cards all along, weren't you? Yeah, I was at a NATO meeting um, with the uh, then Defence Secretary, John Knott, who, incidentally, the previous year, uh, the Jan- uh, June uh, 1981, had decimated the defence system in this country with his white paper. Fortunately, it, it didn't go through. Anyway, I was at the NATO meeting. John Knott was there. So was the Chief of Defence Staff. So was the First Sea Lord. And I said, listen, the, uh, the Argentinians, everything, everything suggests the Argentinians are going to have a go at the Falklands. And they're going off. I said, no, 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 no. It's a, it's a naval exercise with Uruguay. So is that what you, is that what you were picking up on, was this exercise? Or was, were there other yeah. things in play no, at the time? No, it was that exercise. It was that exercise, as Julian will back me up, why it was so important. We had spent the previous 30 years exercising every year for an attack by the Soviet Union. And the scenario was they have an exercise which turns for real. And I said to him, that was it. It's the same thing that's going on here. He said, you're obsessed. You're obsessed with the Falklands. And it, was, it seemed to be so obvious. 
But, of course, people like me, we didn't have to take decisions. We didn't have to take decisions to order ships south. We didn't have a conflict between Lord Carrington, who was the Foreign Secretary and had to resign over this, and John Knott, who had created a, a sort of an animosity, terrible animosity, between him and the first sea lord. So when that night we went to Westminster, into Westminster, there was uh, the first sea lord in full uh, admiral's uniform, pounced upon by the guards in Westminster because they thought he was some head case who had arrived. He eventually got onto the meeting with Margaret and said, we've got to go and do it. Whereas the defence secretary was there shaking his head. So was the, the acting chief of the defence staff. General, stuff. Did you, General, do you have any inkling that this was all going on behind the scenes when you were being asked to um, step up to the plate? I hadn't got any idea because we, after the meeting that Christopher's described, uh, the idea of lo- uh, sending a task force was approved by the by the Prime Minister, but they failed to tell the Royal Marines and the chaps in charge of the amphibious ships. Uh, and so we were taken totally by surprise when we were working up the next morning and told to get on with it. And you were very much yourself commanding the initial stages on, on, on the ground, weren't you? Yes, I commanded the landing force that carried out the initial landings, uh, and I planned the landing with my naval opposite number, number Commodore Mike Clapp. And what was the Argentine, what was their strategy at the time? Well, were they plan- how were they planning to take the Falklands well, and, and go stra- beyond? Their strategy was to take the Falkland Islands with a minimum amount of bloodshed and hold them because they believed we'd do nothing about it. That was their strategy, that they would take them and then we'd give up. And unfortunately, they turned out to be wrong, of course. So, uh, Christopher? And what, one reason they, they thought we wouldn't do anything about it was because, you know, in that June 1981 defence review we were talking about, the defence secretary had got rid of endurance. And that was the guardship, if you like. And so the Argentinians looked at this and said, well, they can't be very keen about this. This is a sign for us that it's OK to sort of do something about it because they've got rid of their guardship. So why, why do you think Britain ignored the signs, Christopher? Was it just complacency or arrogance or was it just... Uh, it, it, it's quite deep. Gillian. Hang on, let me tell you one thing. Margaret Thatcher believed that Nick Ridley, her Minister of State had the thing under control and he could get some lease-back arrangement with the Argentinians. Parliament disapproved, but he had convinced Margaret Thatcher that it was going to be OK. And then there was a complete failure of intelligence from, the, uh, from Argentina, from Buenos Aires, and the Foreign Office fouled up. It had three ministers had to go because the Foreign Office fouled up uh, completely on this. And also it was a thing called mirror imaging, going along with what uh, Chris has just said. Because we were conducting talks with Argentina, we thought, oh, well, in the middle of talks, these guys won't do it because they're just like us. Well, they weren't like us. They were totally different. They had different ideas. That was the great problem. I'm so convinced that we weren't, they weren't going to do it. The chief of the defence staff, Admiral Lewin, Admiral of the Fleet, Lord Lewin, went off on a valedictory tour. He was down in New Zealand when it happened, and he, he thought, ah, it's not it's going to happen. Uh, we, I can go down to New Zealand. It- and the second part of it is that as Lord Carrington went off to Israel... <laughs> and he, he said, no, it'll be all right, nothing's going to happen. And also, uh, again, talking about mirror imaging, when Nick Barker, the captain of Endurance, said, I'm getting from Argentine naval officers the message they're going to attack, they didn't actually say they were going to, but they sort of looked at him sideways when he visited ports, they said, oh, no, this is just Barker stopping and trying to prevent his ship from being um, scrapped. What, what, what can we learn from this experience, do you think, Julian? 
But I think we learn from this experience that you, you believe the intelligence. You don't approach things with, a, with but your mind, Chris, or, you with your mind already was made up. Weren't you? Well, to begin with, there were these signs. And then, as Chris quite rightly says, the final intelligence was inadequate. But there were enough signs for people to say, come on, intelligence guys, dig deeper, find out what is going on. The British, amb- the British ambassador with Buenos Aires... Uh, he was telling the foreign officer, no, 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 don't, don't worry. And if you, uh, if you start making noises, then you will, you will spoil relationships. So the foreign secretary said, I think I'd better send some guy down to Buenos Aires and see as a special envoy and see for him myself what's going on. And the ambassador said, you can't do that. You can't send somebody here. It would sort of, uh, it would take away my reputation. And so what did the foreign secretary do? Say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, we won't go then. That is the state now. If you want to know what happens now, just look at all the reports. Have a look at how the intelligence now is being assessed because it's not intelligence gathering that is so difficult and so important. So it, it's actually, intelligence assessment. So at, the, at the time, the technology had no impact in terms of time it took to assess things. No that, mobiles. That, that was... it, this, wasn't, this wasn't some sort of Arab Spring translated into the South Atlantic. There had but, be, the, the, you know, the, we, I think we've got to recognise at the time the intelligence analysis was fatally flawed. There was a battle between the Foreign Office and, and, and the Defence Ministry. There was a battle between the General Intelligence uh, Committee, the JIC, which was absolutely useless and, was it, and had to be reformed after the war. Uh, was it simply human failure then failure. in the analysis? Yes. Yeah, right the way through. And also, don't forget that uh, before this, in, in mid-81, a study had been done by the MOD, can we retake the Falklands? And the MOD had concluded, no, we can't. So it was in the, the Mission Impossible box, which is why the Secretary of State was briefing Margaret Thatcher, we can't do it. And Henry Leach walked in and said, oh, yes, we can. You, so, so, Christopher, leave the war. You, you were there with Henry Leach, yes? Yeah, so, I, was, so I what, was with Henry. Henry had come back from Portsmouth, and this is why he was in full fig of the, uh, uh, an admiral's uniform. And he was convinced that, you know, we knew the invasion had taken place, but the problem was the RAF and the army, I'm afraid, and the Secretary of State were telling Margaret in the House of Commons, in her private room, I'm sorry, Prime Minister, we can't do that because we can't get any further than Ascension Island. Henry storms in, sits down in the only vacant chair, facing, eyeballing her, and said, if we don't do this, you know what will happen? Any tin pot sort of guy will come along and do what he likes. She gave him the hard stare and he said to me later, he said, I'm not sure I should have said that, he said, because that's the sort of thing she's supposed to have said. Blow me, the next morning I said exactly what she did say. But she did ring him up at 10.15 that night, because we were in an Admiralty house, rang him up over dinner and said, uh, uh, First Sea Lord, I think you'd better get your task force ready. So we know about the resignations. You mentioned those early as a result of this. Uh, what else happened? Were there any practices that changed as a result of what happened in the Falklands? Well, the, the, most imp- the first thing that happened was the reform of the uh, Joint Intelligence Committee. And that was particularly important to be able to assess. We come back to this point, you know, you can get intelligence, but you've got to know what it means to assess, uh, to assess the intelligence. I think the second part that, 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 that happened that was important was to upgrade, upgrade uh, militarily, the so-called defensive force of, of, of the Falklands themselves. Julian can tell me whether that was, that was adequate, but there we are, that's what we did. And also remember the most important thing that happened, General Galtieri, the guy that had started it all in, in, in South America, in, in Argentina, he went, and mm. the whole thing politically changed in Argentina. The other thing that's quite interesting too, and I was told this by the British ambassador to uh, Moscow some years ago, was that the Russians looked with amazement at what we did. 
And they suddenly realized that there was one NATO country other than America that would fight for principle, and that was quite a shock to them. I mean, he, he said to me that was a real shock. Well, a step-by-step reconstruction of the Falklands War starts today on Twitter and Facebook. The collective museums of the National Museum of the Royal Navy in Portsmouth will run the day-by-day account of how the war unfolded in 1982. You can follow on Twitter using the hashtag Falklands30. I'm sure we'll be talking about the Falklands in the coming weeks, of course, but for now, gentlemen, thank you very much. The sound of the state trumpeters of the Household Cavalry, whose mounted regiments have been parading the very best of their pageantry ahead of a summer of unprecedented ceremonial duties. The Diamond Jubilee, the Queen's Birthday, the Olympics, and of course there's Trooping the Colour. Not forgetting that last year they were deployed to Afghanistan, and they'll go again next year. Well, earlier I met their commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Dan Hughes, and a horse called Abigail. I began by asking the Colonel about their workload. Well, we thought last year with the royal wedding would be busy. Um, the royal wedding, in fact, was uh, I found out about as I was taking over the regiment, um, which was a bonus. And we thought it was a busy year last year, but this year we expect to, to exceed it at, at all levels. How excited is the regiment about all the ceremonial duties I'll be involved in this year? I think very excited. I think um, certainly there's a... Um, where we feel enormously privileged to be able to take part in these occasions. Um, we see it as a great honour. It's, um, it's, a, it's a unique event in our lifetime that's happening this year. And, uh, yes, it's a, it's a huge honour to be a part of it. And to what extent do you see yourselves in the roles that you're doing as kind of ambassadors for Great Britain? The eyes of the world will be on you, but also for the armed forces. Well, I think obviously the, um, the role of the armed forces, and I wouldn't single out this regiment to, to have a, a special role. We are just one part of, uh, of the bigger piece. But I think that certainly with the relationship between the armed forces and Her Majesty, I think that there's obviously a special relationship with the armed forces and we're delighted to be a part of that. You've had people deployed to Afghanistan last year. You've got people going out next year. This year, obviously, all the duties we've talked about. How difficult is it for people to move from one role to the other? Because they're completely different, aren't they? I think so. But uh, we train all our soldiers um, right from the beginning in both roles, and they are then able to flick between them as they move up their their career ladder. Um, I think that as equipment becomes more complex... Um, we have to work harder um, on the operational side to make sure that we are, uh, and as operations become more complex themselves, we have to work hard at that. But we're generally able to... uh, Thank you. Uh, We're generally generally able to... That's Abigail there trying to join in. I think think she's got something to say. (laughs) She has, yes. She's saying, don't forget me. Obviously, the horses are a vital part of what we do. I was going to ask you that. How do the horses actually enjoy the ceremonial aspect of their job? This is a very functional barracks. These aren't pets. They're military working horses. And I think um, it's important to remember that. Obviously, they're, they're important. I think the key thing to get over is it doesn't matter how much preparation you do. Horses, animals are generally unpredictable. So we never quite know what's going to happen on a parade, however much we've done in preparation. What kind of thing worries you the most when you're on a parade? You, say, you talk about the unpredictability of it. People and animals, obviously in a work environment, things can go wrong. 
I think it's the size of the crowd, certainly at the Royal Wedding last year, where there are only over a million people lining the street. We expect similar numbers for the Diamond Jubilee. And you can't really rehearse that in any sensible way. So I remember last year for the Royal Wedding, we had about 50 soldiers out waving flags, pretending to be the crowds on the day. It helped, but it didn't quite replicate the million that were there. So there's always a risk. I understand uh, you are rumoured to be taking the lead in the sovereign or commanding the sovereign escort for the Diamond Jubilee. Uh, how nerve-wracking is that kind of responsibility? I think um, we do so much preparation. Everybody sees the glamour of a parade, but very rarely do they see the hard work that goes into it. We try and de-risk the whole thing as much as possible through rehearsals and preparation. Um, as I said, though, there's always an unpredictable element, and my thought as I head out of the barracks at the head of the regiment is that I no longer have really any control over what's about to happen. That's uh, in the lap of the gods. I suppose the difficult thing is men follow orders, but um, horses don't necessarily. No, and uh, that's... Uh... That must be difficult for someone in the military. <laughs> Well, they are military horses. They've all got regimental <laughs> numbers and they are subject to military discipline when required. <laughs> Very good. That was Lieutenant Colonel Dan Hughes, the commanding officer of the Household Cavalry Mounted Regiment. Well, Major General Julian Thompson and Christopher Lee are still here. Um, Julian, you spent a lot of your military career doing ceremonial duties, haven't you? Um, well, not a great deal, but I've spent enough. And, uh, how important do you think that side is within the military? Well, it's a, it's a good way of binding people together because people think that ceremonial is a, th a thoughtless thing. In other words, people don't have to think. But actually, every single man on a big parade like the Trooping of the Colour has to be, have his wits about him and think and act as a team. And it's a good way of showing off to the public. Uh, it's a good way of projecting the UK, PLC. I think it's very, very important. And we've got to remember that these guys who do ceremonial don't just do that. They also go and fight. Uh, and they're fantastic soldiers, and they're very good at ceremonial as well. Uh, Christopher, pomp and ceremony, does it make a practical difference to morale and discipline over, overall when they go to fight? I mean, the discipline and, the, and, and, and you're talking about the, the way it shows to the public, uh, the kind of pride that you have. It's, the, it's, it's part of the overall thing that you do. I mean, you know, I've been going for an Admiral Interview Board, and they said, why do you want to join the Navy? And they said, I like uniforms, I like ships. I mean, there was a great deal of truth in that. Uh, in Wildfire, HMS Wildfire was in, we got the freedom of Chatham. They sent this grisly GI from Whale Island to train us just to march, because he thought we were all a bunch of big girls' blouses, and we couldn't march, which was right. He taught us to march around Chatham. At the end of it, the public stood there and applauded. We felt ten foot tall. And we returned to the wardroom, and I can't remember what happened for the next two days, but it, made, it joined <laughs> us together. Gentlemen, thank you very much. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Major General Julian Thompson and, of course, Christopher Lee. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter at BFBS SITREP. We're back at the same time next week. Thank you very much for joining us. From me, Kate Chabot, please join us again next week, and bye-bye for now. Discussion and analysis. analysis. This is Sigrep on BFBS 102.7.